Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Araqi Voices. This is your host, Hassan Haddad. Araqi Voices is a podcast that showcases authentic perspectives and insights about current developments in Iraq. Araqi Voices is produced by 1001 Araqi Thoughts. On Friday, July 2nd, all of Iraq, excluding the Kurdistan region, was plunged into darkness. With the summer heat reaching heights of 51 and 52 degrees Celsius, Iraqis were left without any electricity to provide their homes with power and some reprieve from the blistering heat. While power was back by the end of the weekend to usual norms of about 10 to 14 hours of government electricity a day, Iraqis remained understandably upset about what happened and what they continue to suffer from after billions of dollars spent over the last 18 years on the never-ending issue of insufficient electricity to power their homes. Today, I will talk with Ali Safar, the Middle East and North Africa Program Manager at the International Energy Agency. We will focus on what happened and how Iraq can get out of this power outage black hole once and for all. Welcome, Stad Ali. Thank you, Hassan. I'm glad to be with you. I'm a big fan of your, your podcast. Thank you so much. First, can you please tell us about this weekend's catastrophe? What happened and what caused it? Well, with regards to what happened over the last weekend, it's basically the confluence of several factors. I would say probably three main ones. In some sense, it was a perfect storm. The first is that it was extremely hot. Generally, when it's very, very hot, uh, the the efficiency of power generation, so the, the generators in Iraq, would go down. So they're supplying less electricity. But that's probably the, the smaller part of the equation. A second part of the equation is what would happen with with imports from Iran. Now, by and large, there's two forms of imports from Iran. The first is uh, direct electricity. Iraq uh, imports around, or is supposed to import, around 1,200 megawatts. And the second is the import of natural gas to be able to then burn that in Iraqi power plants uh, to generate electricity as well. Now, both of those import streams have uh, dried up. Uh, to a to a trickle now, so uh, part of this is because of late payment issues. The other part of it seems to be because Iran uh, has its own demand spike uh, domestically that it has to take care of and doesn't have enough access to to then um, uh, export to Iraq. So, with that, around forty uh, to forty two percent of Iraqi uh, total production is then put in jeopardy. The third aspect, and this is a really uh, big part of the equation, I would say, is that there seems to be uh, seems to have been an, a concerted uh, terrorist action against the uh, electricity sector, both with the generating plants, but also the transmission and distribution network, the lines that are used to evacuate the, uh, the electricity that is produced. So uh, all of these three factors probably had a role to play. And like I said, they all came at the same time. When there is a big hit to production, then uh, generally the systems kind of shut down. And I think this is what we saw on the 2nd of July. Thank you. Now, it's interesting that you're you're giving three different things happening all at the same time, uh, causing the catastrophe that took place over the weekend. I want to take a moment and, and break some of those down. Um, let's start first with uh, the the attacks on the power transmission lines. 
and and even some attacks on power generation sites. Do we know who the perpetrators are of these attacks? I'm sure the government has a view on who it is that's uh, perpetrating these attacks. If past is prologue, I think it's anybody who uh, has ill intention towards the government and wants to discredit uh, this government. Generally speaking, uh, the the kind of weak point, the Achilles heel of previous Iraqi governments has been the electricity sector. It's the surest way to prove to the Iraqi people that the government is unable to provide for basic services that they so badly require, especially in the su- summer months. So if uh, somebody wants to act against the government, wants to show it up, generally they hit the electricity network. So I can't speculate about who that would be, but it's quite an effective method because it's a perpetual daily or multi, you know, multiple times a day. It's a reminder to Iraqi households that the government cannot provide for its basic needs because every time there's a blackout, the heat is felt intensely. And that, of course, then in turn multiplies the heat on the government. This makes perfect sense why it is such an easy target and why, as you said, uh, you know, you take out uh, transmission lines or a generation site and you're able to remind people quite easily of the uh, failures to provide Iraqis with services. Now, one of the things you discussed is that there is a lot of focus on Iraq's energy dependency, uh, especially when it comes to electricity and gas purchased from Iran. Can you tell us why there's such a focus on this issue? I think there needs to be more focus on this issue. I think there's been too little focus on this issue, to be absolutely frank. The imports that I spoke about coming from, uh, well, wherever they might come from is irrelevant, really. The simple fact is the volumes that Iraq imports every year are equivalent to the uh, the gas that it flares from the, the fields uh, in Basra. So the $3.5 billion in imports that Iraq uh, spends every year could easily be made up for in local supply. Iraq is a very rich country in oil and gas. It is very abundant in oil and gas. Uh, and currently, there are flaring activities of around 18 billion cubic meters per year. To put this into context, Hassan, it's a bit difficult sometimes to to understand what 18 billion cubic meters is. It means that Iraq consistently ranks as either the second or the third largest flaring country in the world. And this is a huge issue because if you look at every other country on that list, on that top 10 list, you know, whether it's Russia or Iran or the US, whoever it might be, all of those other countries are net exporters of gas. No other country on the list, apart from Iraq, burns gas at the same time as it imports it. Now, I said this costs around $3.5 billion a year, but it also means that Iraq remains dependent on others to source its energy needs, and we saw the risk of that in such acute fashion over the last week. So not only is it uh, you know, tremendously costly to do this, it also means that you're beholden to others to secure your electricity. On top of that, it's extremely environmentally harmful to the people of Basra, where cancer rates, anecdotally at least, cancer rates are extremely high, to the pollution, the air pollution around the cities in the south. This is a really harmful practice. Um, and so whether you look at it from a from the point of view of the local environment or 
the economy or for energy security purposes, this is one area that really needs to be the focus of attention so that Iraq can solve a multitude of its own problems. Now, for me, the energy security issue is really, really interesting. It's potentially the one that's been in the spotlight least. But no matter how close your political ties are to any country, it can put you in a difficult position when you're beholden to them for such an essential service. Now that you put it that way, that it's an environmental issue, it's a financial issue, it's a health issue, and it's a national security issue, I I have to completely agree that, yes, we should be uh, focusing much more on uh, on this topic. Now, if we can slightly switch gears, um, you mentioned a few numbers in terms of the the costs of uh, flaring gas, how much we're importing. It's it seems like it's very difficult to know exactly how much electricity and gas Iraq is importing from Iran, and there are many conflicting numbers out there. Can you give us why these numbers vary so much? So I can just tell you what I've heard reported. Now, obviously, with these kinds of bilateral deals, sometimes by nature, then it's not very easy to find out, you know, the, the, the exact terms. But the numbers I have heard is that direct electricity imports are 1,200 megawatts. So to give you uh, a bit of context, Iraq generally can produce around 19,000 megawatts. In a good year, it can produce that much. So it's, you know, it's not an insignificant amount of direct imports. Then the gas imports are enough to power around 7,000 megawatts. So just to put it into context again, what we're saying is that 8,200 megawatts out of a total of 19,000 megawatts or so is in one way or another dependent on uh, what Iraq can import. So that's, uh, that, that's kind of the extent of it. Now, one thing I would mention, uh, you know, coming back to your point about the financials, the financials are one thing. That's only the first order effect. The fact that Iraq is burning gas and then imports for three and a half billion, that's kind of the easy calculation. The harder calculation to make, and one that we've actually taken great lengths, or we've gone to great lengths to try to, to solve it, is to find out what does Iraq's electricity shortage mean for the economy. In other words, if Iraq was able to meet its demand in the summer months over the last five or six years, how much larger would the Iraqi economy have been? Because we all know the fact that it's not able to do that is an extremely large strain on the economy. And this is where it gets interesting, because remember what I said about it costing three and a half billion dollars per year? That's peanuts compared to what the economic cost is rather than the financial cost. Our modeling, which we just completed, and like I said, it required quite valiant efforts by my team uh, at the IEA, uh, have come up with a number that puts the economic loss at around 140 trillion Iraqi dinars between 2014 and 2020. In other words, if the Iraqi government was able to supply the electricity that the people demanded in its entirety, the Iraqi economy would have been 140 trillion dinars larger than what it was. That is an absolutely stunning number uh, for those uh, listening not so familiar with the Iraqi dinar that's just under $100 billion. Now, Going back to your work, um, in your 2019 report, Iraq's energy sector, a roadmap to a brighter future, 
you and your team detail that Iraqis pay $4 billion a year to private generator operators. In your opinion, can the government take on such a lucrative oligopoly? That's a really good question, Hassan. My job is to try to provide some of the context for these numbers and to try to provide some at least kind of headline solutions to them. Now, when you say $4 billion goes to these neighborhood generators, what does it look like compared to the other money that's being spent? In the same year that they captured $4 billion in 2018, the Ministry of Electricity had a capital expenditure budget of around $2.5 billion. So think about it. The revenues by these generators, by these private generators, was basically one and a half times what the entirety of the government could spend on generation, on transmission, on distribution, on the essential service to Iraqi households. So it's obvious there's a massive skew there. What needs to happen is some of that revenue that is currently captured by these neighborhood generators needs to go towards the government. It needs to go towards the tariffs of normal household electricity so that the revenues can be captured by the Ministry of Electricity that can then make the necessary investments in the infrastructure that would improve the overall supply in the first place. And this can happen because if you look at what the neighborhood generators are charging and you know, it's, 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 you ask around in Baghdad, people are generally paying 20 or 25,000 Iraqi dinars per ampere of electricity. That translates to $1,300 per, per megawatt hour. $1,300 per megawatt hour of electricity is around 100 times the amount that was offered at auction for solar power in Portugal last year. So in other words, it's unconscionable. This is money that's being captured out of desperation. So yes, something absolutely needs to happen because this is the way you can change infrastructurally at the very kind of fundamental level some of the ills that have befallen the Iraqi electricity sector. Now, as you say, some of the solutions seem obvious. Some of the solutions even in our 2019 report seemed obvious. And when I say they're obvious, it's not just obvious to me, it's not obvious only to kind of energy practitioners globally. It's also obvious to people inside Iraq, including in the Ministry of Electricity. So ask yourself this, if it's obvious to me, and it's obvious to most people who've suffered electricity outages in Iraq, and it's obvious to policymakers in Iraq, then what's the X factor that's stopping it from happening? My inclination is to believe that if the solutions are clear and the value proposition is clear, but it's not happening. It's because there's a political economy question behind it that's stopping it from happening. And as you say, when $4 billion of revenue are involved, it's quite clear to see why people would want to maintain the status quo. I would imagine, and this I have no evidence of this except for intuition, that when those kinds of rents, those kinds of revenues are being defended, there's probably political power behind it. There's probably armed power behind it. And it's difficult to move against people that uh, have had that much revenue and that much power for so long. And I would imagine that there is little political will to tackle those political powers. Now, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um and I can talk to you for another hour about this, but I'd like to close by asking, um, as an energy expert, given that you've worked on the region for over a decade, 
Um, can you detail some of the reforms that Iraq needs to undertake in the short, medium, and long term to overcome its electricity problems? Well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Hassan, and I'd happily stay for another hour if you wanted me to. This is a big issue and it requires quite a lot of detail. But with regards to the kinds of reforms that can happen, well, I already detailed in, in, in my previous response that the uh, current setup means that revenue accrues towards the neighborhood generators and not to the uh, government generation. And that as a result of that, as a result of the low revenue towards the Ministry of Electricity, they are unable to invest the amounts of capital that are required in the infrastructure. So how do you break that? Effectively, you need to enact two reforms simultaneously. You need to try to find a way to transfer the revenue from the private generators towards the Ministry of Electricity. You do that by concurrently doing two things, raising the tariffs that Iraqi households are, pay, are paying for grid-based electricity at the very same time as you're regulating what the neighborhood generators can charge for the electricity they supply. So in other words, the Iraqi household, they don't need to pay more overall. They're just paying the people that are providing the bulk of their electricity, the government, more than they're paying the neighborhood generator. Now, what would that do? That would effectively break the cycle of low revenue leading to low investment leading to uh, poor provision. You get higher revenue, you can invest more in infrastructure, and therefore the, the provision of the service will improve. So just to cap off, it's to say that there would need to be a tariff reform for grid-based electricity at the same as there's an increased regulation on what the neighborhood generators are allowed to charge their customers. That is probably the single most important issue that needs to be uh, tackled. Now, the previous governments, or at least to be precise, the previous government was talking about this. And I think that this is a, a, an issue that really needs to be re revisited. It is an, an incredibly politically challenging issue, but without it, it's difficult to see how you can get a sustainable electricity system in Iraq. Now, the good news is if this were to happen, and if investment were able to increase in Iraq, then all of the technological aspects of this challenge are solvable. It's known what Iraq needs. Iraq needs increased investment in its transmission and distribution network. It needs to reduce the losses in its generation by making sure that maintenance programs are run efficiently. All of these things are doable. They're imminently doable if there is the correct incentive, if there is the right capital. So that's the starting point that I would suggest. And like I said, it's not even, you know, this is not me re reinventing the wheel. Uh, this has already been suggested. And hopefully this is something that uh, in the future will uh, again be, uh, be considered. I hope so too. Thank you very much, Ali, for a very enlightening uh, chat. And I look forward to speaking with you soon. My pleasure, Hassan. Thank you very much for having me on. We hope that the people of Iraq can see light at the end of the tunnel, including their ability to have 24-7 electricity that they can use, especially during the extremely hot summer months. That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify to receive notifications about a new episode from Iraqi Voices. Until next time, take care. Thank you.